This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we're going to look at the prospects and obstacles for labor under the Biden administration, which is beginning with some promising labor-friendly measures, not a moment too soon given the extremely difficult working conditions workers continue to face, now made even tougher with the pandemic. We begin with labor historian John Logan, who brings us the story of the organizing initiative of Amazon workers in Alabama taking on the notoriously anti-union company, which is the second largest in the United States in the midst of a pandemic. The implications for this struggle are nothing less than titanic, and we'll get the story. And we then turn to law professor Vina Dubal, who's written widely on the conditions of precarious platform workers, particularly in the rideshare companies like Uber and Lyft. Vina Dubal has cautioned us that the passage of Prop 22 in California has emboldened these companies to go national, and she cautions that Prop 22 poses extreme danger to workers everywhere and will exacerbate enormously the inequality we're already experiencing. Vina strikes a note of hope for the new administration so far, but notes that organizing will be the key. We'll get her take when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Well, we have a new administration, one that is beginning with some promising labor-friendly measures and not a moment too soon, given the extremely difficult working conditions workers continue to face now made even tougher with the pandemic. Precarious working conditions usually refer to the instability of gig or platform work. But now, with the pandemic, we have widespread unemployment and the threat of unsafe working conditions for frontline or essential workers, where the hazards of work now include not having enough PPE or the inability to socially distance and workplaces that already have COVID infections. So that makes it much, much worse. President Biden has fired Trump-appointed anti-union NLRB counsel Peter Robb and Alice Stock. Some have said that's giving the union busters a taste of their own medicine. And he's also nominated Marty Walsh as labor secretary. Well, we're going to begin today with labor historian John Logan, and he's going to discuss with us the new scene for labor, and especially to highlight the unionization drive at a new Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, which may well be the template for labor in this difficult period, organizing in a pandemic against notoriously anti-union companies. So workers in Bessemer, Alabama, are seeking union representation, and that would make them the first unionized Amazon warehouse workers in the nation. That warehouse opened just in March, and it's one of several that Amazon needed to scale up their operations. Because the coronavirus pandemic has driven increased demand for online retailers, not just Amazon, but Amazon especially, and it's seen record profits. And we've seen also that CEO and founder Jeff Bezos' wealth has increased exponentially since the pandemic forced lockdown with soaring online sales and deliveries. This battle, as I said, is historic. It's taking on Amazon, and that's sort of like what it was like to take on General Motors in an earlier period with the same implications, I think, for capital labor relations in contemporary capitalism. So 
I'm really pleased to have John Logan with us, and he's an expert on the anti-union industry and anti-union legislation in the United States, exploring how public policy and employer opposition have made it difficult for workers to form unions in the United States, and much more so here than is the case in other developed democracies. John is Professor and Chair of Labor and Employment Studies at San Francisco State Union, and he's joining us today from somewhere else. (laughs) John, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Hi, very happy to be on. Thank you. Well, I wanted to start before we get into Bessemer with how you see the Biden's administration's first moves pertaining to labor, firing John Robb especially and nominating Marty Walsh as labor secretary. Yeah, I, I think, as you said, I mean, the early signs for labor are generally speaking all positive we tend to be optimistic in the early days of a new democratic administration. And then, you know, we we obviously need to wait and see how things develop when it comes to, you know, more tricky issues such as the PRO Act to protecting the Right to Organize Act, which will be incredibly difficult, you know, for the administration has come out very strongly in favor of passing this legislation that would strengthen and enhance workers' right to choose a union. But the experience of the Employee Free Choice Act under the Obama administration, the experience of trying to enact previous pro-union legislation in the United States has really shown that there's almost nothing that the business community, that new chamber of commerce, very powerful uh, corporations such as Amazon and Walmart will not do in order to block legislation that gives workers a stronger right to form a union. But Aside from that, as you say, Biden has surrounded himself with an economic team that has a very strong background in labor issues. You know, that's a very positive development. You know, has people like uh, Janet Yellen, like Jared Bernstein, like Heather Boucher, who are all very, very good progressive labor economists and who understand these issues, have written a life, spent a lifetime writing and studying these issues. Marty Walsh at the Labor Department, I think is a generally a very good choice, a positive choice. He's a former official for the Laborers Union, then head of the Building Trades Council in Boston, 17 years as a Massachusetts representative before becoming mayor of Boston in 2013, where he has a very strong pro-Labor record. And Walsh himself is unusual in terms of a cabinet pick. You know, he's from a blue-collar, working-class Irish immigrant background. He has worked in the construction industry. He knows what it's like to be unemployed to struggle to have enough work to be underemployed, to work in an industry that really, more than any other prior to the pandemic, was characterized by workplace health and safety issues, by injuries and even deaths on the job. And he has a very strong record of promoting workplace safety in the construction industry in Boston. So all of those things bode well. You know, they've immediately gotten in political appointees, you know, at departments like OSHA, we already are seeing the start of a functioning federal occupational safety and health administration, which has been completely missing in action during the Trump administration. So, you know, during the worst public health emergency of the past hundred years, the worst public health emergency during OSHA's 50-year history, OSHA under the Trump administration has done virtually nothing 
to protect American workers from being infected and getting ill and in some cases dying from COVID at the workplace. I mean, it's just absolutely scandalous. But immediately we've seen action on that front through executive orders, through appointments. We will undoubtedly see more action in the coming days and weeks. But I predict within a week, we will see a lot of action over workplace safety issues. So all of that is tremendously, uh, opt- you know, I think positive and, you know, gives is, you know, good reason to be cautiously optimistic about labor developments under the Biden administration. There's going to be really tough issues down the road. We'll see how those play out. But, you know, so far, so good. Well, I want to echo that cautious optimism. And also to just to underscore it, because we've seen in every Democratic administration since Truman that the, you know, the unions mobilized to get them elected and then wanted to get changed to labor law. And every single administration, all of them, even through Obama and Clinton, and all it's not even, but with them, has said, get me labor legislation and I will sign it. And then when they get it to them, they say, we'll do it in the second term. And then, of course, other things happen in the second term. And it's languished all yeah. this time. So I think... Yeah. You know, this may be it. Who knows? Mm -hmm. It's not a question of keeping your fingers crossed, but mobilizing to make sure that that's the case. So let's use that as the background then, John Logan, to go into the struggle that I want to highlight, because I think it is going to be a kind of bellwether in a sense. And that is what's happening in Bessemer, Alabama. So maybe you could just start by explaining to the listeners what that union organizing looks like, what it's looked like altogether at Amazon, giving, for example, as I said in the introduction, that Amazon has up till now prevented any unionization. There's not a single worker in the United States working for Amazon who belongs to a union. And so that's the implication that it would be a historic background. So maybe you could just start by giving us the overall situation there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Obviously, Amazon's been around, you know, it was created in the Seattle area in Washington state in 1994. It's faced a number of efforts to organize workers over the years, notably in 2000 with the Communications Workers of America trying to organize a call center just outside of Seattle, where Amazon engaged in very aggressive anti-union practices that have come to characterize its response to unionization throughout its history, and not just in the United States and other countries too. The union lost that election, but then Amazon the year later actually closed the call center and got rid of all of the jobs of the people who had been involved in the organizing campaign. Prior to the Bessemer, Alabama NLRB election, which we're expecting to take place next month, but we shall see Amazon is trying to delay the process. Prior to that, the previous effort was actually in Middletown, Delaware, at the distribution center where the machinists attempted to organize a relatively small group because they were only trying to organize the technicians within the warehouse. But again, they encountered an extremely aggressive anti-union campaign from not just Amazon management, but from its anti-union consultants and lawyers who brought in specifically for the purpose of defeating the organizing drive. The machinists said afterwards 
The workers had approached us. We had over 50% signed union authorization cards. Even after the election, we think there's significant support for unionization, but they were terrified by the anti-union campaign. And of course, that's a story we've heard over and over and over again. But obviously with Amazon and with Walmart, but I would say even particularly with Amazon, when you have a company that has the resources, that has almost unlimited amounts of money to spend trying to defeat a union organizing campaign and has the stomach for a fight, which clearly Amazon does, you know, clearly Amazon will do almost anything to try and defeat an organizing campaign so it can, can keep its unilateral control of the workplace at all of its U.S. facilities it's very difficult for unions in the United States in the private sector. We know this. We know that the laws around union organizing in the private sector are weighed heavily in favor of employers. Employers have exclusive access to workers at the workplace. They're allowed to hold captive audience meetings. They're allowed to bombard workers with anti-union websites, anti-union videos, anti-union posters, anti-union flyers to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with managers and supervisors, to bring in highly paid lawyers and consultants who specialize in the defeating union campaigns. They do all of this, and Amazon is doing all of this. Now, the other thing to mention, just as you did, in talking about the historic significance of the union vote, Amazon, Amazon is now the second largest private sector employer in the United States, after only Walmart. It has over 800,000, probably closer to 900,000 or even a million employees. You know, with Amazon, the number goes up and down because of the huge number of seasonal and temporary employees. But the company has just grown massively. As you said, it's grown massively since the start of the pandemic. Mm. It's employed hundreds of thousands of more workers, but particularly since the launch of Amazon Prime a little more than a decade ago, the number of employees at Amazon has just skyrocketed. So here you have a big tech company, and of course, both in Seattle and in other cities around the country, but now particularly at so-called HQ2, which of course is in Alexandria, just outside of DC, Amazon has a large number of highly paid white-collar tech employees. And in fact, Seattle in many ways is beginning to resemble a company town where Amazon has tremendous influence over the economy, over the politics, over the life of the city. But Amazon is primarily a low-wage warehouse and logistics employer rather than a high-wage tech employer. Most of its employees are not high-paid engineers, other white-collar employees. Most of its employees work in the warehouses, work as delivery drivers, work in other low-paying positions. And as you say, they're all non-union and working conditions, as we've heard over the last few years in particular, often leave a tremendous amount to be desired in terms of health and safety issues, of injury rates. Even prior to the COVID pandemic, Amazon had a poor record when it came to these issues. 
Let's go into them because we need to get down to the specifics of Bessemer. Yeah. And I, I'm glad you noted that it's second largest to Walmart. You know, it's kind of interesting. And I'll come back to this after we talk about Bessemer. It's just the difference is that Walmart is uh, run by a, a very conservative family and Bezos is a liberal. And yeah. we're going to see, I hope, in this about the approach to labor. You know, even the fact that Amazon has incorporated a lot of former Obama administration people into it, and yet it hasn't really changed its tune on that. So let's go to Bessemer. First, maybe just describe the warehouse, how large it is, what is Mm -hmm. the, you know, are the workers, what are they? Are they mostly African-American workers? Are they full-time? Are they part-time? Is it in a city or a suburb? Give us the terrain. Yeah. Yeah. So as you said, Bessemer opened last spring. It actually opened with tens of millions of dollars in public subsidies and tax breaks, as often is the case with these types of plants. Bessemer, as you note, is just outside of Birmingham, Alabama. It's in a town which you know, has a tradition of steelwork and unionism too. I mean, Alabama, although it's in the South and although union membership is relatively low in Alabama, union membership in Alabama is significantly higher than it is in most of the neighboring states. So it's higher than it is in Mississippi, it's higher than it is in Arkansas, et cetera, et cetera. There's about 6,000 workers that are included in this bargaining unit, slightly less than 6,000. I was actually at the three days of NL LRB hearings because, you know, I'm reluctant to call anything an advantage of the pandemic. But, you know, one of the things in pandemic is I knew I got to (laughs) attend Zoom hearings, you know, at the NLRB. And initially, the the union, they are the retail warehouse department store union, the RWDSU, had petitioned for a unit that was much smaller, 1,500 or so. Amazon made the argument that you know almost everyone should be included regardless of what job they performed within the warehouse and so it actually the union agreed to that finally it got a much larger unit but it was noticeable that the union was prepared for that you know obviously had a sufficient number of authorization cards signed you know you need at least a third of the bargaining unit to sign union authorization cards it, it didn't go in there with 500 cards you know for this unit of 1500 because when the unit size was increased to 57 or 5800 workers it had enough to proceed with an NLRB election for that much larger unit and so it's a relatively big unit, you know, as far as NLRB elections are concerned these days. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, concerning the logistics of holding the election, but also in terms of the significance of the win if the union were to get a majority support and get a yes vote. Most of the workers, you know, perform, there is a variety of tasks. Most of the workers are, you know, pickers, packers. They're involved in the types of tasks that most workers are in Amazon warehouses and distribution centers. But there's also a range, you know, there's robotics workers, there's health workers on site, there's drivers. There's a variety of different, you know, job classifications within the site. There is a large number of part-time workers. Now, one of the things that Amazon says is that for full-time employees, we have a minimum wage of $15 an hour. That's correct. But they also have a lot of workers in that Bessemer facility that are you know, more highly skilled. And so they're on much higher wage than 15 bucks an hour. But because they have a very large number of part-time workers who 
do, are not entitled to the $15 an hour and not entitled to the same benefits, the average wage within the Bessemer plant is around $15 an hour. So they have a very significant number of part-time workers. It's been an unusual union campaign in the sense that the union had obviously been organizing for a number of months. We should say just in passing that RWDSU is often associated with New York and with retail and you know with the big department stores in New York where it has you know, had collective bargaining agreements for many decades. But it also has a very long and a very so strong tradition of organizing workers in the South. And you know, particularly in food processing, but also in nursing homes and a variety of other contexts as well. So it knows the South, it's very well established in the South, including in Alabama. So it is in fact quite a sort of natural fit, you know, in terms of it's it's also organizing at Amazon in Staten Island, you know, in New York City and other places. But it, it organized for a number of months, basically under media blackout. You know, there was nothing about yeah. this until it filed for an election in late November. And you know, all of a sudden, this became probably the biggest labor story in the country, or certainly close to it. But there was nothing. And so even now, it is an unusual organizing campaign in many ways. And, you know, the RWDSU has a reputation for being a sort of imaginative, energetic, vigorous union that has won campaigns that a lot of other unions might not be able to win. And so when you hear, you know, unions going up against Amazon, you know, everyone just sort of thinks, oh, my goodness, you know, <laughs> that's going to be so difficult to win that election. And of course, it will be. But there are many reasons to think that in this particular case, you know, the RW has run this very clever campaign. It's a very imaginative union. It, it's an area which, as you said, a large percentage of workers are African-American. There's a tradition of unionism in the community. The RW has a tradition of representing workers in that part of the country. And so all of those give reasons for optimism. Now, well, I, let me I, just come in there yeah. just for one second, because yeah. you basically described what my next question was going to be, which is what they're doing to win support yes. for the drive, both in the, you know, the workers working there and perhaps yeah. in the community around there. Right. How are they right. building public support? Right. And maybe you could just say a little bit more. We have a lot to get through, but also yeah. like what they're trying to achieve. What are their demands besides getting a union? Yeah. So again, I, I think, you know, perhaps it's a little bit unusual in the sense that when we think about these types of big labor campaigns in recent years in the South and other parts of the country, you know, we tend to think about them in terms of corporate campaigns where they're like, you know, trying to organize within the plant, but also trying to engage with the broader community and you know, bring in all sorts of community allies to exercise influence through local politicians, you know, through you know, a media campaign, through all of these different things. And I think, you know, and it makes quite a lot of sense here that the large part 
the RW is not doing a lot of these things, Amazon, because it doesn't think that ultimately in the context of Alabama, where the larger environment is still, you know, very hostile to unionization, you're often fighting these kinds of campaigns in the South, you're not just fighting against employers, you're fighting against, you know, the entire sort of conservative eco-structure within the environment, the, the sort of like right-wing politicians at the state and local level, the local business community, the Chamber of Commerce, all of these sort of outside anti-union front organizations that gravitate to the community for the purpose of like, you know, we want to keep unions, big unions out of the South. So we've seen this with the UAW, you know, when the I was UAW, just going to ask you about that yeah. in Chattanooga, where they yeah. involved local and state right. politicians to exactly. intervene. In Chattanooga and also in Mississippi, in Canton, Mississippi, when they were trying to organize at Nissan, a very aggressive campaign that was not just, I mean, in Chattanooga, it wasn't so much the company because, you know, there was, at least on paper, there was neutrality from von Volkswagen, Mm -hmm. but the governor, the elected representatives of the Republicans in the statewide offices all spoke out against union, which was almost unheard of, but... In, in, but is it different um, in Bessemer? It's a different well, state. But but what's I guess this? Yeah. I, I interrupted you, but it prompts yeah, the no, question please. of what Amazon is doing yeah. to prevent this unionization sure. drive. Yeah. So Amazon is, as one would expect, in get, starting to engage in a very hardball anti-union campaign. So immediately when the petition was filed and when it became public that you know the RW was trying to get an election, an LRB election. In in Bessemer, Amazon immediately engaged the services of Morgan Lewis, which is one of the nations. It's actually the fourth largest full service corporate law firm in the country, but also one of the largest management side law firms that specialize in labor and employment issues. And it engaged in particular Harry Johnson, who's a former Republican appointee to the National Labor Relations Board. Morgan Lewis is actually better connected with the NLRB than any other management side law firm. The current, well, no longer the current chair as of two days ago. Uh, The chair... So I have to be careful, like revise everything I say in terms of updating it to the new realities. But the last John chair Rob. of the Trump, yeah. yeah, well, Peter Rubb was general counsel, as you mentioned, yes, who has been booted out. But the, the, the chair of, he was general counsel, the chair of the board, John Ring, came directly from Morgan Lewis to the National Labor Relations Board. The previous Trump chair, Phil Miskimara went from the Trump NLRB to Morgan Lewis. Harry Johnson went from the NLRB to Morgan Lewis. William Emanuel, who's another arch conservative on the NLRB, came from Morgan Lewis, then Littler Mendelssohn to the Trump NLRB. So the current Republican rules, you know, they've made it, of course, much more anti-union in terms of how NLRB elections are conducted. They reversed a lot of the changes that were brought in by the Obama NLRB. So the current NLRB rules for running union elections, which Amazon are exploiting to their advantage, were to a large extent shaped by the law firm that is representing Amazon at the Bessemer election. So, you know, they have the law firm that is, I would argue, is 
better connected with the Trump NLRB than any other management side law firm. All of the legal observers, legal newspapers said at this time, when you hire this law firm and these particular lawyers, it shows that you intend to play hardball that you are gearing up for a fight. And that's exactly what they've done. So the first steps that they took were to try to delay the election as much as possible and to expand the size of the bargaining unit. Now, as I said, they were successful in expanding the size of the bargaining unit, but it appears by all accounts that the RW were ready for them, that they were prepared to, you know, they anticipated that happening. They were prepared for a much larger bargaining unit. Delay with none for years and years and years can be a killer for union campaigns. It's always a deliberate employer tactic. So they've been trying to delay and delay and delay. And they've openly advocated delay. They've run webinars telling employers every day of delay that you can achieve helps you, hurts the union. And so that's what they've been trying to do. And so just in the last couple of days, the NLRB said, you can get your bigger bargaining unit. The union also agreed to that. They also wanted an on-site election. There have been very few on-site elections during the pandemic, only when both sides agree and only when the pandemic, you know, the hurting part of the country where the the virus is not out of control, which is almost nowhere at the moment. (laughs) So in November, the NLRB rule uh, set down very clear guidelines about what levels of virus transmission must be in the local community in order to even consider an on-site election. Jefferson County, where Bessemer is in Alabama, is nowhere near meeting those guidelines. The virus is just you know, many times higher than would allow it to have an on-site NLRB election. Amazon has actually appealed this in the last couple of days and saying, no, the unit of analysis should not be the county, it should be the actual plant. And within the plant, we can ensure a much lower level of transmission. You know, during the hearing... It's like you another always, voter suppression yeah, tactic. <laughs> yeah. So as you said, they're basically you know, coming up with this sort of Trump argument that in the midst of a pandemic both NLRB election officers and Amazon workers should be forced to participate in a super spreader type event in order to exercise their right to vote. And there's questioned the validity of NLRB postal elections, which have been taking place for months now in exactly the same ways, saying that, you know, there's a higher potential for fraud and for coercion, all of these ridiculous arguments that have no basis in reality. There's no empirical backing. Right. Well, I wanted to ask you just what specific support, let's say, the unionization drive where the workers in the union are seeking, say, in terms of publicity, you mentioned that nobody even knew about this until November. But on the other hand, the mainstream media, you know, rarely takes on Amazon. Jeff Bezos is the owner of the Washington Post. I don't know if that is significant in this specific instance, but also Amazon has pledged to uphold international labor standards, you know, such as the core conventions Mm -hmm. of the International Labor Organization. So it seems like those would be areas to pursue to try to help the workers make their case. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about why this is such a titanic struggle and and what has to be taken on. 
Yeah. So, I mean, very briefly, there's two issues. And as we were discussing a minute ago, I think there are sort of like particular circumstances in Bessemer that dictate why the RW is running the type of campaign that it is running. You know, apart from anything else, of course, the people who are anti-union try to portray any kind of organizing campaign as outsiders trying to bring this sort of like, you know, foreign force into the American South. And so they're very sort of sensitive to the idea that, you know, this is not, I mean, this is basically a grassroots organizing campaign that started with the workers and involves a union that has deep roots in the American South. But I think, you know, that there's an effort to portray it as something very different as sort of outsiders who do not have any connection with Alabama. But the broader question you asked, for a number of years now, there have been both national and international efforts to bring pressure on Amazon to give workers basically a free and fair choice when it comes to forming a union. And, you know, Amazon talks a good talk when it comes to these issues about, you know, abiding by and recognizing global and international labor and human rights standards, but it behaves in a way that you know, is completely and absolutely opposed to and inconsistent with those standards. And this is true in other countries too. You know, I've several years I've been going to meetings which bring together unions from Germany or United Kingdom or Poland or Italy or Spain or France and other countries where workers at Amazon have been trying to form unions and they all tell the same stories of absolutely you know bitter and aggressive resistance to any kinds of organization on the part of Amazon management. German union Verdi, which is one of the largest most powerful in the country has been fighting with Amazon and engaging in strikes, work stoppages, actions on the job since 2013 and considers Amazon to be one of the most anti-union companies in the entire country, where that type of anti-union behavior is much rarer than it is in the United States. And as I said, in the United States, it's not just Bessemer. We've seen repeatedly, we've seen organizing efforts and worker actions in Minneapolis, in a a big warehouse outside of Minneapolis, where most of the workers are actually Somali workers in that case, in Staten Island, in New York, and in a number of other places. John, we don't have a lot of time left, but I really wanted to just get this final question in because you mentioned at the beginning the new PRO Act, which is labor law reform. So what do you think the Biden administration could do to specifically help this organization drive if it's going to, you know, let's say, put its money where its mouth is in terms of being pro-labor? And then what political support against the unionization Bezos can call upon, given what we may see unfold. And then finally, just within all of that, what would be the significance of the victory? Right. So in terms of the PRO Act, as you say, I mean, it's going to be like it's a monumental task for the Biden administration. But, you know, the early signs are that, you know, he's saying that it's much more important to his agenda for restoring the American middle class, for promoting economic security, for promoting racial justice, for all of these things that he considers to be absolutely central to his agenda. So it's possible that he might try to pass 
the PRO Act, or at least large parts of the Act, by including it in infrastructure legislation or including it in other legislation that's really key to the economic platform of the Biden administration. Now, so details remain to be worked out. But, you know, I, again, as you said before, you know, part of the problem with previous administrations, even with Obama, you know, and there were a lot of reasons to be optimistic about Obama's support for the Employee mm-hmm. Free Choice Act. But we're told, well, it has to wait because, you know, the first issue understandably, is to stop the next Great Depression. And then we have to deal with reforming the financial sector. We have to deal with healthcare reform. Healthcare reform took forever. And before you knew it, we were facing the midterms and labor law reform. So it's very important that we don't fall into that trap again. If this is going to happen, it's probably going to happen within the first year. I mean, that's the reality. And if it's going to happen, it needs to be pushed in a way that you know, is so central to the larger economic agenda of restoring the American middle class, promoting racial justice, restoring gender equity at work, and so on. The second issue, you know, in terms of what political support Amazon can draw upon, well, we saw in Cal- I mean, I know you, you have a different part of the program talking about gig workers, but we saw in California this election, the tremendous power and influence that big tech has on, I would say, you know, basically corporations in this country have been writing our labor laws through their lobbying influence and their lobbying power for decades, but it's usually sub rosa. You know, it's usually all hidden below the surface. With Prop 22, it was all out in the open. They just paid 200 million and they bought a labor law that they wanted for their firms. But, you know, it gives us an indication of the sort of tremendous power that they now have in politics, you know, and that includes Amazon perhaps more than anyone else. But third, in terms of the significance, I think it would give an absolutely enormous boost in the arm for the general organizing climate in the country as a whole. It would just sort of change people's minds, I think, about what was possible. I mean, this is not the 30s. You know, this is not the Depression. This is not the New Deal. It's not FDR moment, perhaps. But you know, we now have an administration that says it's prepared to use the bully pulpit of the office to say that uh, new unions are good for America. Unions are good for the economy, they're good for workers, and they're good for democracy. And I think, you know, if you have a president, a vice president, a secretary of labor, who is prepared to talk in those direct terms, and you have it backed up by really landmark, very significant organizing victories against the biggest corporations in the country, like you have Amazon, I think it would just give a tremendous push to union organizing in general. And if I can have like 10 seconds, I mean, what I hope Biden says and what I hope Americans hear is that, you know, we're really facing a stark choice at this point. You know, either we have an economy in which a growing number of Americans are working in poverty wage jobs dead-end jobs that are dangerous, that are degrading, or are working in the gig economy where they don't have enough, know if they have enough hours from one week to the next, or we have an economy in which millions of Americans can once again enjoy 
the economic security of a middle-class lifestyle and reasonably expect a better standard of living for, for their kids. And if we want the latter, we have to have stronger unions and collective bargaining. There simply is no other way to achieve it. You know, I hope Biden says that. I hope people get the message very clearly. I hope a union victory at Bessemer sends that message very clearly. And, you know, in, in, say, in general terms, I think there's good grounds for cautious optimism all around. What a great place to end it. And I want to thank you so much, John Logan, for that incredible overview, as well as pointing out the specifics of this struggle in Bessemer. John is a expert on the anti-union industry and anti-union legislation. He's also professor and chair of labor and employment studies at San Francisco State. John Logan, thanks for joining us so much today on Jacobin Radio. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you. And and don't go away. When we come back, we're going to indeed talk to Vina Dubal about the gig industry. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and I am so pleased to finally get Vina DeBall to join us. It's been a long effort. She's incredibly busy and incredibly important. And we're going to continue talking about the potential for labor under a new Biden administration. We just talked about the potentially historic struggle going on to unionize Amazon workers in Alabama and ended with, you know, how important this will be also for gig workers or precarious labor. So we have a lot to talk about. And Vina Dubal is a professor of law at UC Hastings. Her commentary and research on the intersections of technology, low-wage work, and organizing, particularly in the so-called sharing or platform economy, are regularly featured in the local and national media. She's also been cited by the California Supreme Court, and her scholarship has been published in many of the prestigious law journals. And you can find her op-eds most recently in the New York Times, but also Guardian, the Los Angeles Times, and Slate. And Vina wrote a lot about Prop 22 and Organized, too, which passed in California after the rideshare company spent more than $200 million to confuse voters about what the measure is and what it means for workers. And because of that, Vina Dubal was subject to all kinds of harassment, probably unexpectedly, maybe not, and we can ask her that. But she cautions that measures like Prop 22 pose extreme dangers to American workers who are already seeing that its victory has emboldened these companies to take it national. And that is also what Vina warned, saying that if they're successful with Prop 22, we're headed for ever worsening inequality uh, and much more than what we're already seeing. And as we just heard from John Logan on the organizing drive against Amazon in Alabama, the struggles to better the conditions for Precarious workers are really the most significant struggles today. So I want to welcome you, Vina Duval, to Jacobin Radio. We should just talk like there's a new administration. We're going to see new challenges. We've got some good signs so far in measures and appointments. But talking specifically about Prop 22 and also because it was, as we'll get into, written by in California and by people who are not necessarily uh, known as Republicans, <laughs> but Democrats. So let's talk first about what the impact of Prop 22 is, both in California and nationally, and what its impact will be beyond the uh, transportation network companies. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, Susie, thank you so much for having me and, you know, long admired all of the work that you do on the show. And I'm sorry, it's taken me so long to get on and I'm honored. So Prop 22 is essentially a law that exempts certain companies, new categories of companies that have been created from the minds of the companies themselves, transportation network companies, and delivery network companies, they exempt these companies from providing minimum labor protections for their workers. The result of which is that you have hundreds of thousands of workers in California, almost all of whom are the majority of whom are people of color and immigrants, who are not protected by basic labor and employment laws. It's what we call a third category of worker, a worker that has you know, a few benefits that an employee should have, but not all of the benefits that workers are, or that Congress intended for workers to have after the Great Depression and the advent of the New Deal. And so in California right now, these workers can work all day long and by law actually go home in debt. So, for example, what Prop 22 did was create a situation where they legally are being paid by the piece. So the workers are only being paid by engaged time and there is no regulation of supply. So there's no regulation over the number of people who are on the road, um, number of people who are working So, for example, if it's a slow day, like, you know, during the pandemic, there's not a lot of people taking an Uber or no Lyft. Someone can work a 12-hour shift and maybe, you know, depending on where they're working and when they're working, maybe only get paid for two of those hours. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about how much they've invested in the car, the wear and tear on the car, gas expenses, if you think about how much they're spending on their phone, all of the business expenses related to driving, and you look at their net earnings, they often go, you know, they will go home with less than the minimum wage um, and, and in some cases make no money at all. And so I think that there were a lot of misunderstandings that the general public, the voting public had about what Prop 22 really is and was. And it was as a result of incredible amounts of advertising and propaganda. As you know, in California, you can put misleading political advertising on the air, you can put lies on the air, and it's not illegal. And so there was a lot of misrepresentation of what this proposition was. And so, you know, I I firmly believe that California voters didn't know what they were voting on. The problem, however, is that what happens in California then spreads all over the world. These business models originated in California. And and that's, you know, that's my big concern. But before you go into, you know, that implication, because I think you're absolutely right. Most people who were looking at the advertising thought this was about protecting the flexibility that these drivers had. But what you just described about now working, you know, could be working 12 hours and only get paid for two of those hours. Is this sort of what you would describe as the plight of independent contractors? And maybe you could just say just briefly, like what protections are lost when you're an independent contractor? Absolutely. And, you know, there are true independent contractors. There are true, there are small business people, plumbers, for example, some journalists. There are, there are people who are truly independent contractors that are small businessmen who are uniquely skilled and situated to absorb the risk involved in small business. These are not independent contractors. These are low-wage workers who are creating profit for a large multinational company. And culturally, independent contractors typically have the power to set their own rates 
to use sort of business acumen to grow their business, to develop clientele. Again, these workers don't have any of those capabilities. There's really no what the courts call entrepreneurial potential for these low-wage workers. They have no control over price. They have no control over even where they go. With taxi drivers back in the day, you know, taxi drivers had these unique brains that were studied because they understood cities in such incredible ways. They had memorized the ins and outs of different streets, and they just had this intimate relationship with the cities that helped them do their jobs well. These drivers are told where to go by GPS tracking systems. They're told who to pick up by algorithms. They're told how long it should take them, etc. They're told even how fast they should drive and when they're speeding. So they're very, very controlled in all of these sort of extreme ways, even more controlled than most employees are controlled. And yet they are bearing all of the risk of an independent contractor. They are, as you said, bearing the risk of the vicissitudes of supply and demand, which is really a risk that the multinational company should have to the large corporate entity, you know, Uber and Lyft or Instacart and DoorDash. Those are the risks that they should be taking on. Instacart and Uber and Lyft, all of them in the context of this pandemic have continued to try and recruit more and more and more drivers. I mean, for Uber and Lyft to try and recruit more and more and more drivers, when at some moments in this pandemic, a ridership was down by 80% because people weren't obviously not using the services, was just cool. You know, putting hope in people's hearts that, you know, maybe as they were waiting for their unemployment checks, or maybe they were undocumented and not able to get UI, that those people sort of had the hope that they could sign on it and make some money. And so all of the traditional risks associated with independent contractings are here in this work without any of the ability to grow your business, to grow your income. And in fact, we've seen in the context of Prop 22, now that it's been rolled out, that some of these companies are using algorithmic management. Um, like Instacart and DoorDash to actually cap people's income. This um, is exactly what I was going to ask you to describe. Yeah. So just go ahead and do it because what are the implications of management by algorithm? And you've discussed some of them, you know, in terms of, well, a lot of them, but there's also surveillance, invasion yeah. of privacy. Maybe just describe it for our listeners. Totally. Yes. So maybe I can focus on, there's just so so many things involved with algorithmic management. So one of the big things that the company's PR reps will say is, oh, like they're their own boss. You know, they don't have to report to a boss and this is something that they like. And it's true that first time drivers, new drivers often are like, oh, this is great. I don't want to have a boss over my shoulder. This is awesome. But after a few months, long-time drivers will tell you that they savvy up to all the ways in which they are controlled by their app. So the app often tells them how fast they're going, encouraging them to slow down. And they also get emails at the beginning of each week telling them when they should work. So they essentially have these shifts Like they get emails that say, this is when we anticipate demand. And so if you work during other time periods, essentially you're being told you're not going to make money. So this idea that even, you know, you can work whenever you want to is sort of a farce. You could potentially work whenever you wanted to, but you're going to lose money. The other things that happen, and this is, I think, really key for a lot of workers, is that the companies collect a lot of data on where they're going and who they're picking up and where they're picking those people up and what their own patterns of work are. And they use that data, the drivers tell me, to cap their earnings. So for example, a driver might 
stop working at 4 p.m. every day because he has to stop working or 5 p.m. every day because he has to stop working to take care of his family or to take care of his elderly parents or what have you. But after a while, the companies know as a result of their data collection that this particular worker likes to stop at 5 p.m., but we want that worker to keep going. So we're going to start giving him lots of rides. We're going to make it really slow for him from three to five, where he's not going to get a lot of work. And then we're going to start giving him lots of rides. And it's a way to artificially inflate supply and to keep driver's wages capped at a certain rate so that someone who all of a sudden at 5 p.m. hasn't made the money that he's anticipated is, it is going to have to keep working. And that's one more body out there on the road, one more of a person that can give consumers a cheap, fast ride. And then you also hear drivers say things like the real money for workers is not in the rides, it's in the bonuses. And Mm. so everyone has these personalized bonuses and they don't really know, you know, how these bonuses are calculated. The bonus that you'll get is a different bonus than I'll get. And it'll say, hey, if you get 20 rides in the next five days, you get an extra $150. And so like, because that's where the money's at, that's what people are aiming towards. And drivers tell me that right as they start getting closer and closer and closer to that number, you know, to that 20 number to get those $150, all of a sudden they'll stop getting rides. And they'll be in like, this one guy told me he was like in the busiest part of San Francisco on a Friday night, it's pre-pandemic. And he was driving around and he was seeing all these people with their phones, like waiting for their lifts or their Ubers. And he was not getting a hit and he wasn't getting it because he posited because he was so close to getting his $20 bonus and they wanted just to get him to keep working. And so like things like that, drivers are figuring out the ways in which they are being managed. You know, we know that the New York Times years ago, Noam Scheiber did an um, expose on how these companies have hired behavioral psychologists. Yeah. And I was going to say, we also had Sarah Mason on here to talk about how it was, you know, they were using it like gaming and they would addict you to these these goalposts that you could never reach. (laughs) Yes, it is fascinating. It's like they, it is like gaming. And it has the same sort of psychological elements in it. There's like in my book, which I'm writing right now, I call it the cruelty of hope, where you have mm-hmm. these really low wage workers who are in such dire conditions right now in a recession and an economy where there are so few jobs. And what they're capitalizing off of, what these companies are capitalizing off of is the hope that these workers have that if they really work long and hard, then they can stabilize their lives. And what's so sad is that that is just not true in this economy. And it is not true by law now that we have Proposition 22. In a recent op-ed in the New York Times, you talk about the way that companies outside of transportation are taking already taking this up and something you warned about as this goes uh, national. So can you talk a little bit about what Albertsons is doing with their drivers? Yeah. So what I fear mm-hmm. Albertsons has done, so what they did ultimately was they took their employee drivers or their employee delivery drivers, some of whom were like working towards the union. They took those drivers and they eliminated their jobs. And they said, these jobs are now going to be fulfilled by contract workers via DoorDash. And this was not just in California. This was in other states as well. And I think what it symbolizes is the idea that these companies have, um, that venture capitalists now have, that we have, because of the Prop 22 passage, that they are in a new regulatory playing field, that they are going to win this battle 
to promote misclassification and to be able to use independent contractor workers to not have to worry about labor and employment law overhead and the risks and the financial costs associating with having employees and that that model is going to be sanctioned. We were in a very different place even six months ago. You know, six months ago, we were in a post AB5 world. AB5 was the first law in the history of the, the United States of America since these good companies have sort of invented themselves as labor platform companies. It was the first law, the first instance where you saw a lawmaker really and a legislature really stand up against these companies. To date, legislatures and regulators have really rolled over, mm-hmm. turned their head, you know, 10 years into the business model. And so few regulators were willing to stand up against these well-financed, well-lawyered companies. And I interviewed regulators and enforcers who said as much that, you know, we recognize that these are illegal labor practices, but we don't have the power in our office to go up against, to be papered by these very, very prestigious elite law firms that they hire. As if, you know, enforcers were really scared for a long time to go up against these companies. And in California, they finally did it. Assemblymember Lorena Gonzalez, stood up and she said, there's no difference between these companies that are misclassifying their workers and the nail salons that are misclassifying their workers and the construction companies that are misclassifying their workers. Just because you put technology into the game doesn't mean that the company doesn't have to abide by the law. So, you know, regulators all over the world were emboldened by this. I was getting calls from Korea, from the European Union, Germany. People were really watching and they were like, wow, we can do this too. And I think what these companies think is that the passage of Prop 22 is sending a message to regulators that it's not worth trying because look, we can buy our own laws. And so, you know, we saw that move with Albertsons. We've seen Sean Carolan in the, it was a venture capitalist, I think at Menlo Park Investors, write an op-ed in the information, you know, just a, a, a few days after Prop 22 passed. And he said, this is what Proposition 22 makes possible. It makes possible basically the gigification of all other types of work. You know, you think that this is just about Uber and Lyft and Instacart and DoorDash, but the venture capitalists are looking at this and saying, why can't we do this for other service work? Why can't we do this for computer programmers? Why can't we do this for nurses? Why can't we do this for educators? Why does anyone need a full-time job? Why does anyone need an hourly wage or, or overtime protections? Why does anyone need unemployment insurance or workers' compensation? And so what I kept saying in the, the weeks leading up to Proposition 22 is that this is literally the scariest law that I have seen in my lifetime. And I will continue to tell anyone who would listen that this is literally the scariest law that has passed in my lifetime. It has the potential to represent the dissolution of the hard-won New Deal protections. And frankly, we are in an economic and a political moment when that would just be devastating. It would be devastating for racial justice as well as economic justice. Um, We're already, you know, Joe Biden said, I think, and when he was passing one of his executive orders that was making it possible for more children to get food stamps. He talked about the growth of food insecurity in this country right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, these gig workers that I have been following and working alongside who are organizing to get better conditions, who are so devastated by the passage of Prop 22, they don't have food security. You know, we are talking about people who are like waiting in line at food banks or not just food stamps. I mean, really having to to go the extra length to put food on the table for their kids. And this is America and this is the direction that America is going in. And this is where the venture capitalists are taking us. 
Wow. Well, thank you for all of that, Vina Dubal. But I wanted to, I heard you say elsewhere that Prop 22 is fashioned by Democrats, not Republicans. You're describing a situation that we've heard at least some vague promises from the Biden administration that will no longer be the case. And we also know that Chemerinsky just wrote today an op-ed calling on the California Supreme Court to immediately initiate a review to challenge the illegal aspects of Prop 22. So we might be seeing some fight, maybe. But I wanted you to talk a little bit about the Democrats who made it. And of course, we know that Tony West is the general counsel of Uber. Yeah. He's a Democrat. He was being considered for attorney general. That isn't you know, who the attorney general is going to be. He's also Kamala Harris's brother-in-law. But the thing about it is that all of these companies are dependent on politics and political intervention to allow them to continue doing what they're doing. So could you just maybe, you know, talk a little bit about what the leading Democrats, some of them, you know, who were involved in fashioning the law and what they're doing? You know, and this is something I grapple with every single day. And I was talking to my husband about it yesterday and he said, you know, Vina, Everyone thinks they're progressive until it comes to their own industry. And then all of a sudden they're Mm. a Republican. And, you know, there's been a real revolving door between people in the Obama administration and the tech world where there is a lot of money to be had for elite actors, even elite actors that imagine themselves to be progressives. So you have people like Tony West, who, you know, if you read his Twitter timeline, he sounds like a good progressive Democrat, except that he was behind probably the most far right wing law that we've seen in California in many, many years. That is Proposition 22. And really, we have to understand Proposition 22 as an assault on racial justice, just as we understand it as as it is an assault upon economic justice. And so we have Tony West, who sees himself very much as like a man of the people, wanted to be attorney general, has certainly has the ear of the vice president, if not the president. And you have all of these folks who have been affiliated with the Obama-Biden administration, who now, again, are going to have political influence. David Plouffe was very involved with Uber and Lyft. Susan Kennedy, as already said, you know, is on on record saying that she's pushing for this Prop 22 model elsewhere. She has a lot of inroads in, in, in the Democratic administration. And then, of course, you have these companies like BlackRock and Goldman Sachs, who mm. have a lot of power in the Democratic Party. And, and Biden isn't exactly, and I think we all know this, Biden is, isn't exactly a leftist, no matter what Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio will tell us. He has In his executive orders, he has taken a particular stance around economic inequalities and economic equalities. He does say, he has this beautiful sentence in in one of his executive orders just signed a couple of days ago about how important unions are to America. And all of that makes me very hopeful. But the devil is really in the details. And I'm so worried that this hybrid category, the sub worker standard that Prop 22 enshrined is going to become normalized because this law passed in California. And frankly, Gavin Newsom, our governor, the role that he has played in the fight to pass AB5, he wanted to see some sort of compromise. He wanted to see a third category. He wanted to give up to the tech companies. And there's just too many folks on the Democratic side that don't understand how critical labor justice is, how critical it is for the stability of democracy in this country, and really, frankly, 
for the stability of capitalism. I mean, like, if you really believe, honestly, if you really believe in capitalism, if you really think that this is the direction that this country needs to go in, then you're going to have to give the workers a little slice of the pie. Others, they're going to revolt and you're going to get something that you really don't like. And so I'm sort of baffled by the, the ways in which particularly economic laws, labor and employment laws have become increasingly right wing since the 1970s. I'm so hoping that the rise of the popularity of Bernie Sanders, of people mm. like AOC, that this is symbolizing public demands that are going to push our politicians in a different direction, um, where they're going to have to recognize that this is just not what Americans need or want. We're nearly out of time, but I have one final question. I hope you can answer it. And that is, do you think it's going to be possible for workers to organize under Prop 22? And can you describe any efforts yeah. that are you know, taking place? Well, I'll tell you what, after Prop 22 passed, I was heartbroken. I thought that all of the organizing that I had been witnessing was going and studying was going to deplete overnight. And these workers who, you know, have very little, who are getting by with very little said, oh, well, we're going to keep organizing. And now we're going to, instead of making demands from the state, we're making demands directly for the companies. This is like pre-National Labor Relations Act kind of organizing. And that's just what we're going to have to do. And so I think I'm very, very impressed, very proud and inspired by these workers. Um, I think we're going to continue to see that kind of militancy because, frankly, people need to put money in their wallets so they can pay for rent and they can feed their kids. And, and no one's going to sit back and just accept the few pennies they're being handed from multi-million, multi-billion dollar multinational corporations. Perfect. And of course, as we know, most of the labor advances that we've seen in the last more than a century came from wildcat strikes outside That's of right. unions. <laughs> we're going to be seeing a lot more of that. I think we're going to be seeing a lot of extra legal labor militancy. Right. I want to thank you so much, finally, for coming on, Vina Dubal. It's been a great pleasure, and I hope that I can get you back as we see more efforts in the next period and maybe even some good measures, hopefully, from organizing and from pressure on the Biden administration. Vina is a professor of law at UC Hastings, and she writes in many places, in mainstream meaning and in law journals on low-wage work, the intersections of technology, low-wage, and platform organizing. And I want to thank you so much. It's been an honor to be here, and um, I would love to come back anytime. Perfect. Thanks so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Take care. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.